Welcome to Roadcase, the podcast that explores the live music experience. Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Josh Rosenberg, and I'll be taking you on a journey through in-depth interviews with performers and key people in the industry to explore the magic of live music, how it can be totally transformative for both fans and performers, and we'll look at how they take it all out on the road. It's going to be a great ride, so here we go. Okay, welcome back to Roadcase, everybody. This is your host, Josh Rosenberg. I am so psyched to be here for this episode with Aaron Pincus of Wasserman Media. If you're here for the first time to listen to my conversation with Aaron, welcome to the Roadcase community. If you are a regular or longtime listener to Roadcase, thanks again for being here, and I really appreciate your support. There's a number of different ways that you can get involved with the road case community that really, really helps out this show. Number one is to follow us on the social. So if you're on social media, shoot us a follow. We're on all the different platforms. We're at road case pod on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook uh, really helps out. If you can follow us, uh, you can find out more information about the show at our website, www.roadcasepod.com. Also, if you'd like to get involved with the road case community, you can shoot us an email or emails info at road roadcasepod.com with any questions you might have, concerns, even suggestions for guests. Uh, Another great way to support Roadcase, super easy. If you're listening to this on a streaming platform, if you can subscribe to that streaming platform, really helpful for the show. Uh, If you're on Spotify, for example, you hit that little box that says follow. If you're on Apple Podcasts, there's a check mark in the upper right-hand corner. You click that. And by doing that and the equivalent on other streaming platforms, you'll get updates as to when new episodes come live. Uh, So it's helpful for you, really helpful for the show to follow and also to rate and review the show like on Apple Podcasts. You just scroll down a little bit, hit a bunch of stars, write a review, really helps out Roadcase. So thanks so much for that. Uh, So I've got Aaron Pincus on the show today. Aaron is a talent booker with Wasserman Media in the music division. So essentially he books shows for artists. Um, He's got a super compelling background. He's from Indianapolis originally. Uh, Early on, he had a personal and professional relationship with John Mellencamp and caught the live show bug early. He worked for the William Morris Agency in L.A. for many years before he landed his current spot at Wasserman where he books uh, some very, very successful artists, uh, including the rapper Jack Harlow. Uh, Aaron is uh, really a super interesting human with an obvious gift of gab, which you'll understand from our conversation. And uh, he weaves a ton of interesting stories that are also combined with uh, his thinking on the industry, uh, how he manages the booking of artists and, uh, and all those kind of super interesting things that he goes through as a talent booker. Uh, he's also really in touch with ticket pricing, and we get into a really lively back and forth about Ticketmaster and Live Nation. I really love this conversation with Aaron and just sort of understanding uh, the ins and outs of booking talent across the country, especially in this challenging environment. I know you'll really enjoy this conversation of me talking with Aaron. Thanks again for joining Roadcase for this one. And I want to send a special thank you to Aaron Pincus of Wasserman Media for being here on this episode of Roadcase. And here we go. Hey, Aaron. Thanks for being on Roadcase, man. So great to see you. Happy to be here, Josh. Thanks for having me. 
Yeah, that's uh, that's awesome. So you're in uh, you're in Austin. Have you lived there for a while? Uh, I've been down here for eleven years. Uh-huh. I was in Monterey, California, five years before that. You ever? I don't know if you ever saw the show Big Little Lies on HBO. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah I mean, so a couple seasons con- of it. I'm not like caught up, so don't quiz me. But yeah. So the condo complex in, where they shot that was my con- where I lived in Monterey. It's a, an adorable little place called Ocean Harbor House, which is like the only condo complex on the Monterey Bay. But wow. it, it's kind of a magical spot. So now, uh, and then, and then LA ten years before that. Uh, okay, cool. Where'd you grow up? Indianapolis, Indiana. Oh, okay. I see um, the I see the IU uh, diploma. You went did undergrad at IU. Yeah, I'm the intellectual black sheep in the family. Um, a grave <laughs> disappointment on both sides. Um, oh, no. Where'd your parents go, or if they did? Well, dad and mom met at Butler <laughs> uh, in Indianapolis, and then dad went to law school at Harvard. Mom went to uh, – she got her, I want to say, master's at Rutgers and her PhD at the University of Chicago, but I'm oh, sure okay. if, I'm slightly off there. Yeah, but yes, well. I was, I was, and continue to be their chief disappointment, uh-huh. um, you know, intellectually and across a number of different uh, platforms. But we, <laughs> yeah, we went. You went right to the. My parents are disappointed at me. In me, is that like a driving force in your life? Um. Well, in truth, uh, you know, my dad's actually pretty proud of me. My mom now, I don't know, twenty five years into the agency business, still doesn't fully understand what I do. <laughs> um, and consistently, uh, one, at least once every other phone call is asking me, who do, who do you manage? Is that what you do? Do you manage? No, I, I, I book. It's very close, but not entirely the same thing. Man, uh, my dad had a little peripheral experience in the entertainment business, maybe more than peripheral. But uh, this has always been kind of a foreign area to my mom. And she fully expected that I was going to go to law school and kind of follow in those footsteps. So, Aaron, you're in, you're in Austin, amazing music town, but you're with uh, you're with Wasserman. Is it Wasserman Media and uh, music in the music division? Tell me a little bit. Yeah, about Wasserman that. Media is the is the parent company. Um, it's kind of uh, a pretty cool lineage. Um, Lou Wasserman, who is, in most people's view probably the, the most important and most consequential talent agent um, since really the inception of talent agencies mm. or, or talent at period. Um, his grandson, uh, who he helped to raise, Casey Wasserman, is the guy that owns our company. And he's phenomenally bright, um, has an infinitely better head of hair than I do, um, and is kind of a visionary and a personality that's really sort of magnetic. People just kind of want to be around him and want to be in business with him. And um, at our previous, at our previous shop at, at, at Paradigm, when there was a conversation about the potential change in ownership of the music division, there were a couple of conversations about contemporary or conventional rather Mm -hmm. uh, vertical Hollywood talent agencies. And there was this conversation about Wasserman and Wasserman Media is a number of, it's a conglomerate of a number of different, largely independent, I wouldn't call them b- boutique because most of them are best in class in their specific areas, but right. uh, Riddle and Bloom and Cycle and 
the sports representation business, Mm -hmm. our brand partnerships division, which is headed by uh, Liz Lindsay, who is probably the the foremost authority on um, brands and properties in general on the, on the talent side of things. Right. So it was, it was a big leap. The, the, um, the pandemic hit and the instinct, I think in a lot of cases is to go with what's safe and what you're, what, you know, and that would be a traditional Hollywood talent agency. Yeah. But, um, Wasserman is a pretty exciting place. And we are a year into this process, starting to figure out the contours of that relationship in a meaningful way, mm-hmm. um, across the different divisions. A lot of times you hear sort of business people, which as a music guy, I don't really consider myself like a business person per se. Yeah. It's supposed to be a fun gig and, um, we're not really selling widgets here, but that being said, Casey has managed to roll up a number of different businesses that um, are comprised of people, A, far cooler than I am, but highly intelligent and very nimble. And um, frankly, I'm grateful he, Mike Watts, Jason Rainey, the executive crew over there, decided that the music division of Paradigm was, was worth their time. And you know, our hope is that a year into this experiment, um, that they're starting to feel like they're achieving some return on investment, not yeah. just in terms of the business side of things, revenue mm-hmm. and, and such, but that I think they're realizing that they've got a really great group of people that sort of fits their, their mission statement of, you know, uh, high quality individuals, high character individuals. Yeah. A lot of times companies yeah. say that, but they don't really, that's something that's, outwardly facing and inwardly there are no real rules and it's kind of like lord of the flies and so far i got to tell you that has not been my experience here so i'm, yeah, I'm yeah. Is pretty that something lucky. is that is that not something that that's kind of consistent across the the music agency business or talent agency business i mean it is a business it is a unique business in that a you know you're representing artists and b you know th- those those artists have um have a a, a worldview and they are very much putting themselves out into the world in their own uh, creative fashions. And that creates, you know, for me, that's very much of a humanistic endeavor, clearly um, needing those that are in touch with that type of artistry to help manage them or book them or what have you. Um, how do you see that kind of intersection happen for you in terms of business versus art? Well, um, I mean, it's a really good question. I I would say that a lot of times in entertainment, cutthroat behavior or what we consider dubious behavior is oftentimes rewarded. Um, I think if you were to ask most artists, um, do they want a killer? The answer is probably yes, but there are different ways to arrive at that destination. Mm -hmm. And I think at least everything that I have felt culturally uh, in the new shop has been, you can get what you need for the artist that you represent and you can do it in a way that makes people feel better about the transactional part of our business. Um, part of that also for me is getting older. I'm not, you know, 32 years old anymore. And my ability to smoke two packs of cigarettes a day and drink 12 cans of Mountain Dew and scream for 
12 to 16 hours on the phone like right. o- over time that becomes a, a, a that resource uh, dwindles yeah and then you start thinking about like well how how do i really a want to live my life and b conduct my business and um you know things are never binary in terms of like good versus evil but i would say that i feel like i'm in a place where the good and the benevolent is encouraged and rewarded uh and the evil is 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 less so was this something tell talk to me a little bit about the confluence of business and music for you in your own life in in your own personal and professional and educational development what did that look like for you um my dad used to get me concert tickets i never knew how I would say, hey, there's a show in two days. Uh, didn't know if it was sold out. Never really thought about it. Uh, can you get me tickets? And they would magically appear. I had no idea how how, how that happened, and uh, was probably not a, alert enough to say, hey, wait a second, how did that happen? <laughs> but as it turns out, uh, my father was the principal attorney, the general, I believe, the general counsel for a company called Sunshine Promotions, which is the independent uh, concert promotion business in Indianapolis where I grew up. And it started for me where I was trying to think of something to do uh, going into for the summer, going into my senior year in college at Indiana University. And my dad said, I think I may know a guy that may have a job for you. Mm -hmm. And I wound up working for uh, two guys, Steve Girardi and Mark Elfenbaum, who were the production managers at Deer Creek Amphitheater. And it was probably this day, the best summer of my life. Yeah. Um, I worked two jobs. I worked there and I worked at a computer salvage company in downtown Indianapolis and basically worked every day of summer vacation going into senior year and loved it. Mm-hmm. First one to show up at the amphitheater and the last one to go. And I was, I was hooked. People talk about getting you know, bitten by the bug. And that, that was absolutely it for me. That, that happened that early year. for you. Yeah. So that's where I started. And mm-hmm. then the next year I interned in corporate sales, uh, which basically amounted to cleaning uh, bird poop off of the seats in the, in the corporate boxes at the amphitheater. And after about six weeks, I decided I didn't want to do that. Yeah, that gets um, old. It, it, it does a lot of, a <laughs> lot of, a lot of phosphates in that kind of line of work. But, um, what wound up happening is I, I wound up going back to work at this computer business in Indianapolis. And then I got a call from, I think it was, yeah, it was Mark Elfenbaum called and said, do you want to work these Mellencamp shows uh, at IU Auditorium? You mm-hmm. went to school there, you know, the facility. And I said, sure. So I went and I worked, uh, I don't remember, it was three or four shows that John had, I think three shows at IU Auditorium. Right. And then they asked me and this other kid who I'm spacing on his name and I shouldn't because I basically owe my entire music career. We got asked back to go uh, do three shows in Indianapolis at the Murat Theater. Um, And so I did those three shows and I was the runner and this other kid was the production assistant and Rocky Holman, who was uh, Mellencamp's tour manager, and Bob Quant, who was the road manager, uh, wanted an assistant, but hadn't gotten cleared for the summer amphitheater tour by Harry Sandler, who was one of the best tour guys on the planet, uh, resting in peace. Just an absolutely unbelievable guy, Harry. Um, And so 
the other kid they were going to take because he'd been working in the office. But for his graduation, his parents had said, we're going to pay for you to backpack around Europe for two months. So he was out of the mix. Uh, and so, you know, they said, you know, stay available for this, but we haven't gotten the budget cleared. And I call these guys three times a week for six weeks and ultimately wound up giving up uh, and assumed it was not going to happen. This was going to Memorial Day weekend. So Memorial Day weekend, Indianapolis 500 is happening. It gets oh, right. rained out. Oh. Uh, and I get back down to uh, my apartment in downtown Indianapolis, and there's a message on my answering machine that says, if you want the job, you need to be at the Ryder Truck Depot on the west side of Indianapolis by 8 p.m. tonight. Uh, and that was it. That was Rocky Holman. Couldn't get him on the phone. And so I called my boss at the computer company and said, I am going to go on the road uh, with John Mellencamp for the next uh, five or six weeks. I'm going to take a leave. Uh, I'd love to come back and work for you when it's done, but I got to go and do this. Right. And Phil Goldsmith, uh, my best friend in Indianapolis, Sam, his dad was like, have a great time. Take lots of pictures. And that's what I did. I packed up my stuff. Uh, and I went to the Ryder Depot on the west side of Indianapolis and, and drove a box truck with 10,000 pounds of band gear from Indianapolis to Phoenix in two and a half days. Um, Phoenix, yeah. And got there. Had you ever driven the, like a big truck like that before? Uh, no, I was terrified the entire time, <laughs> oh, and I was uh, I, I I was chain smoking the entire uh, the entire trip. And Ten thousand no pounds way. of gear, not to mention how expensive that was. Oh yeah, it was. <laughs> it, none of it was cheap. But I wound up I wound up on tour with you know there are more annoying details about that, but I wound up on tour yeah. with Mellencamp. And then, so the day of the last show, tour was ending back in Indianapolis again. Yeah. Um, so I played three Bloomington, three Indianapolis's, and then ended with a double at Deer Creek Amphitheater, uh, which is now, I think, Ruoff uh, yeah, yeah, Amphitheater yeah. in Indianapolis. Yeah. But it ends there. the day of the last show. Mm -hmm. Toby Myers, who was the bass player in John's band back then, his dad had passed away when John was doing the show in Cincinnati. Mm -hmm. And so the funeral is the morning in Indianapolis, the morning of the last show. And my dad had known Toby and done some legal work for him over the years. So we went to the funeral. I get back to the same apartment, the same answering machine. And there is a message on that answering machine from John's wife, Elaine, mm -hmm. who at that time was still one of the probably top 10 supermodels on the planet mm -hmm. saying, hello, Pincus. Uh, we've asked around the crew and we found out that you are the oldest of five or six kids. We are going to Hilton Head, South Carolina for a couple of months. Would you have any interest in being a gopher and helping out with the kids? I wind up spending two months with them in Hilden Head. Right. Um, and then they go back to Bloomington. And so I go with the family back to Bloomington and I'm living in the apartment over the the garage yeah. in Bloomington. And one night after dinner, I'm sitting on the porch uh, smoking a cigarette and John comes out, sits down, lights up a cigarette, says, you know, you can't be a gopher for the rest of your life. What do you want to do? And I'm like, well, I... I really like the music business. Yeah. 
and he takes a really long drag off of his, his cigarette and he says, you know, you're really annoying. I think that you would be a really good agent, which is a, a job <laughs> description I never heard previously. Yeah. Uh, but the guy I, really like, but the guy really likes you, obviously. John's obviously got a reputation, but I, what I will say is the, the best thing about him, and I loved the time working with him, and I thought it was phenomenally bright, and I actually thought it was very funny, is you always knew where you stood with him. Mm. His expectation was, from the people around him, that you were going to give, he was giving 110%, so you should do. Yeah. And I don't think I'd ever heard the expression, any job worth doing is worth doing well before him, but that's, if I did, I'm sorry, I'm not giving that person credit, right. but- John was really the one that constantly instilled, if you're going to do anything, if it's mopping a floor, if it's plunging a toilet, if it's, you know, going to the grocery store, like do that job well. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was, look, he be maybe begrudgingly liked me a little bit and he wound up helping me get started in L.A., yeah, I, yeah. I got my first job was going to Paramount Studios, I think in Culver City or maybe, uh -huh. it, was, maybe it was Sony and collating scripts for a project. And in the hallway of the of uh, the floor that I was at, one of the one of the two characters in the movie Amongst Friends, which is a little indie film from 94, standing right there. And I'm like, oh, my God, I'm in the middle of it all. It's like Vic and Eddie Ferretti are standing right next to me. <laughs> yeah. So. It went from there, and there were a couple of other gigs, but then I landed at, at Buena Vista where I was checking box office reports, basically looking at in Missouri and Illinois for the films that they had distributed, making sure that the box office totals uh, added up. Yeah, yeah. So I had originally applied to William Morris three or four months earlier, um, and I'm working for Buena Vista and it's now become sort of like a full-time job. Uh, and I get a call uh, from Benjamin Scales, who is, I believe, still the director of human resources in the music division at William Morris, says, okay, we're going to bring you in for your second interview. And I've kind of forgotten all about it and thought this was never going to happen. Yeah. Um, and, and I go in and I'm sitting there and I'm waiting for uh, my second interview, which was with Keith Sarkeesian who's still at the agency. Mm -hmm. And uh, Benjamin comes out and he kind of admonishes me. He's like, hey, listen, you're, you know, you've had a couple of people vouch for you. Your resume looks good. But yeah. I got to tell you, I had a problem with your resume. You didn't list a company name next to your first reference. Uh -huh. And I'm like, I don't even remember what version of the resume this is. But I'm like, can I see it real quick? And right. like, there you go. And the first name on my resume as a reference is John Mellencamp, who is a client of the agency at the time. Uh -huh. and, ben and Benjamin had no idea. So I'm like, oh, God, I I'm completely screwed with these people. But I survived the, the interview with Keith. Um, I met with John Marks. I met with Peter Grosslight, uh, another titan of the business who is hopefully resting in peace. He should. He was just the absolute greatest. Um and then I wind up going to work in the music division of William Morris. I got hired in April of 98, left in June of 2006, and went to Monterey Peninsula Artists. And Monterey had been acquired by Paradigm, but did not take on the name for a couple of years. Mm -hmm. And was with that company for 14 years, 15 years. And then our division got acquired by Wasserman. 
what was that like when you first got there and was it what 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 most surprised you did, did anything was was anything kind of disappointing to you when you finally got into William Morris at that time being new to that particular area of the business but knowing per- perhaps that you wanted to that you kind of landed at a spot where you had been um with that where something actually resonated well when i got offered the job as a trainee at william morris again my mom didn't really understand what it was and my, and my parents really haven't spoken terribly often since they got divorced which mm, you yeah. know um you know they've been divorced now for 30 plus years and it's and i was the reason they got divorced obviously but um, they've both been very gracious about that. But when, my, when, when I told my dad about the job offer, he called my mom and said, the pay is going to be next to nothing, but this is the equivalent of graduate school for Aaron. Like, we're going to need to support him over the next couple of years and send him a little extra money so he can survive in L.A. And right. I, it's the, the only time in the last half century that my mother has agreed with my father, but God bless her. She said, OK. Yeah. And they basically subsidized me being in the training program. As far as what it was like when I got there, it was terrifying because you don't really know what you're doing um, for uh, and I. I got to give him credit. Keith Sarkeesian told me it's going to be about a year and a half before you know which way is up here. Right. Just try and follow along as best you can. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're, you're eventually going to figure it out. When it started, I was out of 10 trainees. I was the least senior. And after one year, I was the most senior. Uh, I wow. think one person got promoted and everybody else bounced to different gigs. Like it's, was it's it like a, a weeding it, out. Like what, what's, what's part of the weeding out process. What's like the hardest part. What was the hardest part for you? Um, what was the hardest part? Uh, just not screwing up and trying to anticipate what people wanted, which is not easy and trying to look at what you're doing from someone else's perspective to make sure that they're not going to say, you know, what the hell is this kid doing? Mm-hmm. So it was daunting, but I'll say this, William Morris, you know, the company celebrated Centennial the year that I started there, 100 years, the oldest talent agency in the world. And they had a system down. In 100 years, they had absolutely figured out best practices. So the reality is, if you listen to the people who were more senior than you were, mm-hmm. I had two incredible guys, Rob Rhinus and Andrew Crosby, that trained me on my desk. Yeah. Um, and if you if you listen to the people that are trying to help you um, and you really buy into the system, you're going to be OK. But it requires total commitment. It's it's the difference effectively between a job and a career. So you had to decide you were going. This is what you really were going to dedicate yourself to. And, you know, my dad's analogy was correct in terms of the time commitment. It was like going to law school or and no disrespect to anyone who's going to law school. I don't want them to hear this and say, that's nothing like going to law school. It's probably not, right. but that was my grad school. And, um, it was crazy. Uh, you know, it was 85 hour work weeks. Um, literally. Oh yeah. For which, you know, you would, yeah, it, it was, you would, you would be on weekends and there were a lot of us, the crew of trainees that I came up with, uh, Ron Opaleski, uh, Kirk Summer, Craig Mogul, um, you know, that core group, Brian Edelman was there as well, Seth Siegel in, in New York. Mm-hmm. But 
the LA office, usually it was Ron, me, Kirk and Craig. Nobody wanted to leave the office first, right? Because whoever, yeah, right, exactly. whoever, whoever left was kind of, you know, they were gutless. Yeah, yeah, and we're yeah. not willing to commit. Right? Yeah. Thanks for um, showing. Thanks for showing up, dudes. That kind well, of thing. but and all four of us wound up wound up getting promoted. Oh, but right that was the the level of of drive that you kind of had to have. Um, and that was, I, I think, that was unique. I, I looking back on it now. A lot of the other departments, when six o'clock hit, they would clear out. But there was always one corner where the yeah. lights were on. The, on the so you guys floor. had a you guys had a tight knit kind of hardcore group that probably helped a little bit from a competitive standpoint. Just like the, the bar, the bar was high there. What were what were the core um, the core competencies for you that um, that drew you to the business early on? Like what were the cool what was the cool part about it that that helped you want to to continue to to move forward um there were a couple of things um one was the feeling that you were in the trenches with another group of people going through the exact same thing you were working as hard as you were Mm -hmm. trying to make things happen william morris the contemporary music division at that time had um really was kind of a ghost town mark geiger had left years earlier to go uh work with uh rick rubin and american recordings or american records yeah uh and do an a and r do a and r work over there don muller had left and um the two of them linked back up at artist direct but there was not a lot in the cupboard when i showed up to william morris Mm -hmm. and what was exciting for me when i started maybe not even in 98, we had some really good bands. John Marks had Neil Finney put out a record in 98 called Try Whistling This, which is a phenomenal record. He was working for, uh, he had a client, Francis Dunnery, um, who, for whatever reason, I thought made a brilliant record. He had Grantley Buffalo, who made a record called Jubilee in 1998, which was an unbelievable record, and then broke, broke up promptly after that, I think right after the gig at the Palace in L.A. Um in 99, John Brandy and Tool had kind of gone away to become superstars. Nobody knew that's what was happening, but they left a club band and wound up coming back in amphitheater and arena band, but that hadn't happened yet. Robbie Frazier, who's still at William Morris, had a little band on uh, Loose Groove Records, which was Stone Gossards from Pearl Jam's labels, uh, uh, from Pearl Jam's, his record label. Right. A little band called Queens of the Stone Age. Yeah. So Brannigan had Godsmack, <clears throat> Robbie had Queens, like, and in 99, things started to actually move a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. Queens was the cool band. I, I don't think any of the senior agents really understood who those guys were. All of the trainees were like, this is our band, right? We love these guys. Yeah, yeah. And Godsmack hit, it was the last artist we sent promo for out at, at William Morris with cassettes. They were the last, uh, they, they were on Republic records and yeah. it wasn't CD singles. It was cassettes that we mailed to people and nice. something you could feel was just happening with this band. Like, you know, you start, we started to pick up bands here and there. We got G love and special sauce in 99, who I still work with. Mm-hmm. And, um, there were just, there was, you know, I'm trying to, it was a few years later when 
Kirk got the killers. I booked slightly stupid. We brought in Pepper, which Kirk was booking. Yeah. Um, we started to get some things going. Yeah. And Geiger got there in 2003 um, and got everybody marching in the same direction. And they were off to the races. It took it took William Morris eight years before they became they went from an agency that people bought from out of habit and out of hope that one day they would be like a significant agency again, because the Mm -hmm. music division had been decimated, Mm -hmm. took eight years from either pity buys or, um, or habit buys to, I think really 2011 is when they, they became kind of the dominant agency. So what you're saying is that it was super exciting to be there at a time when you saw bands come in that were relatively new and you were able to take them, uh, raise their awareness, book them, um, uh, have them do some interesting stuff, see their own creative development. And you were sort of there at that, at that time following a a number of different bands that achieved a level of, of success or notoriety that you feel was, um, commensurate with their talent level. And that's something that you find, uh, that you find compelling and interesting and professionally satisfying. Does that sort of like, does that kind of, well, we, the- we were signing bands based on the music being good. There was, uh, there was so much, um, we had so much clutter. We had bands at William Morris that were signed as favors or, uh, you know, as well, we want to try and get next to this larger manager. So we'll yeah. take on their baby band. And it was, it wasn't done because we thought the music was incredible. It was done because it was, I don't know, politi- politically expedient is the correct term, but it wasn't motivated by the signing. Uh, well, it's the, motivated the, by, you know, the business. It's a business decision. Well, but you know what we what I saw, what I observed was that it didn't that didn't really generate a lot of business, right? You working on a band that you didn't believe in, which frankly maybe the label didn't believe in, the manager didn't believe in that, mm-hmm. you know, they get the second after they signed it like, "Oh my god, what do we do?" Yeah. Like you're not going to build a healthy business that way. This isn't Berber carpet. We're not selling replacement artificial heart valves. Like this is music. It's objective and you got to feel something. Yeah. And even if the feeling is, I think this is going to be really big and make a lot of money. Right. Right. You want the motivation to be, this speaks to me and I love it, but yeah. you know, there's the commerce part of what we do on the, uh, on the well, art what side. Is, what is your philosophy on? Yeah. It's a business. You're taking on bands potentially. And you said that this culture existed, you know, when you just about first got there more, more or less of taking on bands because of their popularity or as a favor or what have you. But when does that, what's your view on taking on bands, not only because they can make money, but because you like them and think that they're going places. Talk about that a little um, bit. If you don't like it, you shouldn't book it. Um, I, you know, quietly have been on the team um, as sort of the quantitative math guy uh, in the organization and, and some strategy, which has been, you know, hopefully brought to, to bear in the last year or so, but I've mm-hmm. been involved uh, with probably my best friend at this agency. Uh, DeMont Calendar's his full name. He's like me. If you don't call him by his last name, Calendar, right? It's going to be a problem. But we've been working on Jack Harlow, who's you know got the number one song uh, in in the country right yeah. now. Well, but we've been working on on Jack since he basically got out of high school, and it's been six years. Um, 
And it's the it, for me, it was the video to his song Ice Cream, where there was a palpable energy and a palpable youthfulness and positivity mm-hmm. um, kind of in his demeanor where I'm like, this kid's clearly got something. And I thought the song, I thought, I thought the song was great. And I thought the video was hilarious. Yeah. So I, I've been working with a band out of Miami called the magic city hippies for four plus years. Now those guys mm-hmm. haven't broken through to the mainstream, but saw them here in February and, that band, if they catch a little bit of a spark, uh, are going to be huge. And nothing is guaranteed in life or certainly in this business, but that's one of the best bands I've ever seen. And they've got songs. Mm. And if they can get in enough eardrums, they're, they're going to make a difference in the scene. 100%. Tell, tell me about the development with Jack Harlow. When did you meet him? Did, when, when did you take him on? What does that look like for, and you know, um, it's more about that he's now incredibly successful, but what did that look like early for you? And is that kind of a prototypical type of development of an artist within your own purview? Um, basically somebody, uh, in our New York office, uh, made some, somehow the music got on Cal's desk. Right. Mm -hmm. And I, I couldn't tell you in the New York office what the overall level of interest was at the time, but Cal heard it and heard the same thing I did, which is there's something here. And yeah. Cal and I had been friends since the first, uh, the first retreat that his company AM only was acquired by paradigm. When they joined paradigm, he and I got seated next to each other in sort of this clamshell shaped uh, conference area. Mm-hmm. And we just hit it off immediately. Um, so he came to me and said, look, I want to work on a band with you. I think this kid's got something you want to, you want to listen to it. I did. And I'm like, for me, I thought the music was good, but it was as much about doing something with Cal. Who's, you know, a decade plus younger than I am and still, you know, probably my best friend on, on the planet. Um, and so I said, I'm in. And we booked, uh, we started out booking a tour, which Cal and I still, we argued about it yesterday. Like this was a little tour where, you know, he, Jack had put out his first EP, maybe it was his second EP. And I said, let's go find out if he's worth anything. Let's go play the Mid-South and the Midwest and see if anybody shows up. And if nobody shows up, it'll build character. And if people show up, then we really got something. Is that, is that where and he's from? We, he's from Louisville, Kentucky. Okay. Jack's from Louisville. Mm-hmm. So we booked a tour, um, which Cal was like, this is, you know, we played the main, I'll give you an example. We played the main net shop in Ames, Iowa. Iowa State University has this little, uh, this little venue called the main net shop which is a great room. And that university is unbelievable at supporting live music. Mm-hmm. And Jack wound up doing like, you know, 146 people or something like that out of 200 first time in. But in a lot of the shows there, there's an interview Jack did where he talked about where he's playing in Milwaukee, which for the record, I insist that Cal booked and he insists that I book. But in that show, there was, you know, he had eight people in the van and there were eight people in the venue the tour overall didn't do very well, right. but it was a taste of what touring life was going to be like 
when you were committed to a block of time and doing X number of dates. And I, I actually thought that was um, a really foundational experience for Jack. And Cal has, you know, up until the uh, this last record came out, Cal was insistent this was a disaster. This tour was terrible. Like, you're the worst. And then Jack in the very first song talks about uh, going to, and doing a show. Uh, eight deep, might be eight fans. That builds character, something y'all could use more of. And the second that we got the... Uh, the record, which is a little bit, maybe a, a minute or two before the general public, I called Cal and I'm like, I told you, I told you, I told you I was right this whole time. Like <laughs> nice. three and a half years later, it's finally paying off. Did he mention, so, did he, did he mention which one of you booked the show just to stop you guys from arguing about it? <laughs> he, he, he did not. And I, I would not, I would not waste space to, uh, the disc space to do yeah, that. Yeah, but, yeah, 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 yeah. But Cal had tried to pin that show on me so many times that there was very little argument at that point. Yeah. Uh, so. So at that point, you guys, I mean, taking that back to before you booked that tour, you were like, um, your buddy Cal, right? Was like, take a look at it. Listen to this guy. I really think he's got something. And then you'll send him out on whatever that is, whatever you call it, that trial tour or what have you to see, you know, to see Let's what's up. Let's just go see, see what's up. Let's see so, if anybody cares. I'm, I'm sure you've done that n numerous times with artists and you're like, eh, you know, it didn't get the traction that I, that we wanted. What does that kind of, what does that look like? And what, and give me an example of how you sort of retrench and regroup uh, at that point, had that not actually worked. All right. There's a, it's a lot to unpack there. Yeah, I yeah, would say yeah. in, the, in the context of Jack, um, sweet action comes out in 2020 and the single what's popping is on it. And that song exploded worldwide. Mm -hmm. Right. Talk about catching a spark. That's as big a spark as you can catch. Yeah. Um, and the, the interesting thing about Jack is like, you know, uh, my stepson, Nick, saw him at South by Southwest, you know, a little over five years ago, knew about him, was super excited that, you know, I was working with him. Like, quality, you know, cream tends to rise to the crop. And it was very evident back then that there was something to this kid. You talk about, you know, I'm watching the, the Lakers, you know, sort of fictional historical. So am I. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm current. Let's go. I so, grew up in, a, I grew it, up in LA, so I'm loving the stories. So you, you know, you, you look at magic Johnson and you're like, there's obviously like whatever it is, he's got it. And yeah. you, you saw real flashes of that with Jack. Um, what wound up happening is that he got on some playlists and then radio picked it up and it was off to the races. And now the world is catching up to that feeling that Cal and I had almost six years ago. Where we're like, Oh, there's, there's really something to this. And the funny thing is a lot of people, they know what's popping. Maybe they know industry baby. Uh, obviously first class is, you know, the current single and is number one in the country. He's actually already got an incredibly deep, smart and uh really insightful catalog that a, a lot of fans that are, are fans on the surface if they're not willing to dive a little deeper if they do their their minds are going to be yeah, blown by this kid's intellect. yeah 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 that's what i hear 
but I'll give you the example on Magic City Hippies because that's probably more germane to what you're talking about. Um, they they had a song that they put out on their Hippie Castle EP, which I think was God. What year was that? Um, the Hippie Castle EP was sixteen, maybe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let's see here. Hold on. Hippie Castle was no, sorry, twenty fifteen. All right. So I won't hold you to the day. Okay. Thank you for drilling down on that. O- OCD. I, it's I mean, like the it's real time fact so checking. You're saving our. You're, you're saving my massive fact checking staff a lot of work. Thank you. A, a legion. Well, I'm happy yes. to give them a legion. little time. Legion. Thank you for that. Yes. But they had a, a track on that EP called Fanfare. Uh huh. Th- that absolutely blew my mind. I think I've listened to that track over 900 times mm-hmm. <laughs> um, because I kept hearing new stuff in the song that I was, uh, that I was missing. Like I kept going back and again and again, and I'm like, Oh, listen to this vocal effect. Like they just, it, it was a song in my life again, three years after it come out where I'm like, I got to be involved with these guys. They were, they were leaving their agent and our agency had gotten word that they were looking to go somewhere else. We were asked, you know, does anybody want to do this? And I immediately was like, I'm all in on these guys. Yeah. So we really started in 2018, got them on a bunch of festivals um, and have built, been building their headlining numbers. They put out a record in January. At the time, it was a little bit off with, uh, with the tour because we'd already played a couple of weeks. But the new record is really good. Seven out of 11 tracks I would recommend uh, on the album, which... I know they want me to say 11 out of 11. Yeah. Guys, I was like, that's if you're an listening, comment. If, if you're listening, a minute and 46 seconds is too long as an intro handgunner, not my favorite instrumental. And then high beams. It's like the vocal range needs to come down an October two. But uh, outside of that, I can recommend tracks two, three, five, seven through uh, seven and nine through 11, which is a pretty good batting average, right? Billy okay. Joel usually would, would front load, his albums with his five best tracks. We go out um, in August of last year and do a college run. We checked all the academic calendars, made sure that classes were beginning or the residence halls were open. Right. Wanted to time it. So exactly when kids were back with money from summer jobs or money from their parents that they were going to go out. And I will say this is, you know, outside of Jack, this is the sexiest band that that I work with, and I oftentimes caution promoters that that if any ovulation is occurring within hearing range of the, of, of this band, myself, the agency, the artist directly are not going to be not responsible, responsible for right. for for said pregnancy. Sign off so on that, yeah. <laughs> they 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 are they are a very That's sexy amazing. musical band. That's amazing, dude. So, so we go out in August. I got sick right after Lollapalooza with Delta and was out for a couple of weeks. They go out. They're playing this college run as Delta is spiking. They wind up canceling the last two and a half weeks of the tour because all five band members get sick Yeah, um, and come back home. Everybody recovers. We put up uh, a major market headlining run in January and February. Hello, Omicron. So they're out touring when we're hitting six, seven hundred, eight hundred thousand cases a day, and their numbers from the previous tour drop. 
because people don't want to go out to shows. Right. And, you know, look, there are, there were artists during that period that were selling out, but if you weren't just smoking hot, chances are people would sit it out. And even on the shows that sold, the drop counts for the shows, meaning the people that actually show up were 70%, 62%, like people were buying tickets and not going to shows and not asking for refunds. I mean, it was a really surreal time. Yeah. So we dropped in August from the previous business and we dropped in January and February. And then they put out this great record, which for the one, to be clear, when I heard the demos on this record, I was super (laughs) bummed. And I thought, Oh man, like, not the record that I wanted from these guys. Like yeah. this sucks. I'm super bummed. And then through the magic of mi- of mixing and mastering, I get the final, the finished product. And I'm like, Holy, Holy cow. These guys made another really good record. Now, tempo wise, it's not as upbeat as I would like. Um, you know, I would like them to, you know, I, I'm looking for a little more, dynamic range on tempo Mm -hmm. yeah this is a more down tempo album but it's coming out of covid and there's a little more introspection and reflection so i'm i'm cool with it and i also know the next one that comes is going to be bangers so so what's their touring what's their touring schedule look like and how are you you know they're uh, they're going to tour in august and september we are going back into college markets Mm -hmm. charlottesville virginia burlington vermont start in athens georgia charlotte north carolina asheville north carolina um you know we're going to play brooklyn not because my mom is from Brooklyn, but because there are colleges in New York, right. Hamden, Connecticut, Bloomington, Indiana, Ann Arbor, Michigan. Like we're we're playing school markets, Madison, Wisconsin. Yeah, yeah. So we're we're going to like we think that their audience is college, uh, and we're I, I believe in this band, and we are going to until the world tells me to stop. We're going to keep putting them out because, um, I think that I, I think I'm right on these guys. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that there is there is something to it. So I don't know. I'm sticking with it because I think they're dope. Yeah, yeah. You have to have that belief in what your own. It, it's a matter of taste. It's a matter of kind of subjective opinions as to um, what what you think succeeds out there. And and you've been in the business for long enough to to kind of understand that. When has that gone wrong for you? And how and how do you know when to cut? Do, do you cut losses? Do I mean, what, what does it look like on the flip side of that briefly? Um, well, I mean, you never really talk about, uh, you know, and you never want to call anybody out by name. I had an act that I was working with for, uh, and I, I shouldn't even use the word act. I don't know what I'm saying. That's the, the function of the gravitational pull of age, I guess. An artist that I work with or had worked <laughs> with for six years. And the reality is, that it was the only artist on a roster of 1500 artists uh, in the music division that had active rock radio. um, That was, you know, uh, you know, metal rock, like hard rock. Um, And the artist was incredibly melodic. So I, I don't know if it's a miscategorization, but that was the radio format that supported this particular artist. Mm -hmm. And the reality was, we didn't have anybody else in the genre and uh, they wound up getting, I was on my third manager in four years and they went to a new manager and um, basically 
when they landed, I said, one of two things is going to happen. Either we're going to get fired or we're going to quit. And we were trying to build this particular artist as a headliner and had gotten them to the point where they could, they could just break even on touring. They weren't have, going to have to ask the record label for any money. They weren't going to have to come out of pocket, which was kind of the goal because it was not a cheap operation. Mm-hmm. Um, but we got it to a break-even proposition without asking for any, you know, uh, subsidizing money. And uh, the manager kept asking me to check anywhere from twenty to fifty artists at a time uh, in a particular block or window. Say, can you check these, you know, fifty bands and see what they're doing to support? I'm like, well, yeah, but we're holding this headlining run. Like, do you? You know, the plan was to turn into a headline. Well, yeah, no, we understand, but support. So we get, I check in with one of these bands. We wind up getting offered a support gig for half of the money that we needed to break even. And right. they couldn't have been happier to accept it. And label had to write a check. And uh, we were getting closer to the headlining dates and it seemed like there was no real interest in that actually happening. Mm-hmm. And I got asked again, can you check these 41 artists? Um, and that last one, that's actually, it's not the, the correct number, but it's close enough. It's actually 49 artists said, I'll check 20 of them. Um, and then this was still during COVID. So then it was like, Hey, for the tour that we've accepted, can you get us the COVID protocols? or the 23 shows, the 23 venues that we're going to play in this run. A lot of work, right? Email comes in on a Thursday night. I'm out of town on the road. Monday, I get an email. Where's this information? It's like, you know, voluminous amount of information. Yeah. And I'm like, okay. And then the next day, now, you know, I was, I didn't reply because I just assumed that it was understood you know, what was getting asked for. And the, the tour that was being supported was still a couple months away. Right. But almost immediately after I get the, Hey, where is this? I get the, um, you know, if this is a problem for you, email. So, you know, <laughs> yeah. we can always find someone else is right. kind of the veiled threat. And so I. Giving you some crazy finished. request and then telling you that like, where the fuck is it? Cause I want to like, well, yeah. but we just didn't seem to, and maybe that was, you know, not on the same page way yeah. of, of saying that, you know, like, yeah, we're not trying to achieve the same goals here. And so I finished gathering the touring information for the bands that were requested. Mm-hmm. I got all of the COVID protocols for the venues that we were playing. And I said, here you go. Here are these, you know, 40 some odd pieces of, of data. Um, and candidly, if you feel based on what you asked that I'm not moving quickly enough for you, then I, you know, I, I totally understand. In fact, I'm going to suggest that you find different representation. Right. right. Um, cause it just, you know, and I, I knew basically at the moment that the relationship started, that there was a finite endpoint to it. Um, but, that's just the way that one sh- shook out. It really was only artists very early in my career when I kind of had no idea what I was doing and was combing MySpace pages for bands that I thought might be cool. Yeah. 
So there's so many different factors that involved in something that doesn't necessarily become a successful endeavor for you. And it can, it can come in a number of different ways. It's not necessarily about your own subjective opinion about a band. It's kind of a, it can be a confluence of, of different events. In that case, it was that, you know, perhaps management had kind of a different view on the direction that they wanted to go. And then, you know, things kind of line up, it's, it seems like. Well, but here's the truth. The truth of the matter is, right, and we had packaged this artist with a crazy different amount of artists like outside of their space. Mm. But what I'll say is the truth of the matter is that we didn't have any other artists in this space and forget the fact that I was, you know, put off by this resistance to look at headlining, forget I was put off by the uh, grocery list of artists to check. The reality is that management company was much more in the slipstream of information for that genre of music than we were Mm. and offered that. And the reality is that, you know, it makes a difference when you're working in a particular genre and you know, all the players are, and you kind of have an idea of what you need to spend to get a certain band and like who is the right promoter in this market. Mm -hmm. That is, there is something proprietary about that. Mm. And so I called a buddy of mine, um, who was an agent who had always been a fan of this particular artist and said, I'm giving you a heads up um, that I'm going to stop working with this artist. I know that you care about them. Right. Um, and as fate would have it, he wound up signing the band and that all worked out. They, yeah. they got an agent that was much more in line with what they were looking for. That was, much more in the know for that genre of music. And, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, we yeah, put in real important. effort and did really good work, but we probably took it as far as we could take it. Yeah, for sure. So uh, just to kind of shift gears uh, just slightly, um, but not too much, but, you know, without getting too much in the weeds the how, you know, everyone was hurting during COVID, but now that you're moving forward, are you getting back to some semblance of new normal and what, what did you learn over those COVID period that did you learn anything that is kind of moving you in the direction of, of, of a permanently different way of doing business at all? The prognosis for the live touring industry is actually better because of the pandemic, because it served as an immutable reminder that, that human beings by and large crave connect, Activity and interaction with other human beings yeah. and that the things that we are passionate about um, are what binds us together, whether it's your uh, love of a sports team or your patriotism or the love of a particular musical artist mm. um, or your belief that, uh, you know, the next crypto coin is really the next big one, whatever that passion may be. Yeah. Um, you know, that those are the ties that bind. And, um, but I think that by and large, the industry on the live side has, for the most part, cleared the majority of the backlog of dates that we've been sitting on for two years. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that we're in calmer waters now. I think that most people are a little more patient. Um, I don't think that we, we became our, our, I certainly haven't, I can't speak for anybody else, but I don't think we became our best selves after coming out of the pandemic, but I think we become better versions of ourselves, more empathetic, a little kinder, a little more patient. 
Um, I think. But you just said still... that we did not come out our best selves, though. What what part um, was not the best self? Like what what what? I, I didn't really explain that a little bit. I didn't really. I, I, I think it. Well, what I mean by that is, I I think it hurts your soul when you're that when you're separated from people like that. I think that. Oh yeah, I yeah, yeah. I thought damage. you were meaning uh, in terms of like ways of doing business. Yeah, we were all damaged by that for sure. Yeah, but you know, getting back to a number of shows can 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 help repair that. There are always going to be points of friction. There's always going to be conflict uh, when you're negotiating. Your job is to do the best you can for your client. The promoter mm -hmm. has the same perspective from the other side of the fence. Mm -hmm. I think it's a little easier to find a happy medium. Um, I hope I'm a little better. I think the people I work with uh, were always good, but uh, better now. Um, I, listen, uh, on the flip side, I would say, you know, I see a lot of the stuff you know, having two relatively young kids, I see a lot of things happening in the world that scare the crap out of me. Yeah. In the music business, it's reinforced, hey, we're pretty lucky to do what we do. Um, we are not performing cardiothoracic surgery, but we do actually help in, in some ways make people's lives better. Yeah. Let's be a little less serious about our own importance and understand this is supposed to be a fun job. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. We need to to get back to what everyone's really in this business for and like getting the cold water slapped in people's face for lack of a better analogy globally is um um forces people to take a step back and understand like why exactly we're doing this and that's why you guys are doing this and you know. Um ticket prices, where do you see those going? And you know, there's there's also the matter of, you know, not not as strong of an economy, you know, less disposable income, perhaps. Uh, ticket prices seem to be a little bit on the rise. Where do you stand on making it even slightly more affordable so that, you know, those and, and where's the equilibrium for you in terms of pricing? Well, um, I, I've always tried to be fairly conservative in ticket price. I mean, the issue remains, and I, I understand that there are large companies that are entirely centered around the secondary ticket market, um, which I still view as the largest problem in our business. Yeah. Um, the secondary shout out, shout out to cash or trade. Well, but you know, listen, there are powerful people in, in those businesses that will say, well, Clearly, we're getting what we're getting for these tickets because you've undervalued them. And the, re the interesting side of that is if the artists charged what the secondary sites charge, it would be it would be torches and pitchforks. It would be, you know, it, it would be pandemonium. Um, so, I, you know, as far as what trends you're going to see, look, artists at the very top that, that are that have careers that span the de decades and have huge hits are going to continue to command a premium mm -hmm. artists of today's generation that have hits. You're going to detect a theme here in a second um, that are touring are going to continue to command a premium. And there are plenty of artists that operate outside of that space that will be much more conservative and their ticket prices probably aren't going to rise in line with inflation. Um, Look, if you got a, if you have a hard, a hot artist, you can can't you can command a premium. Um, and if your artist is not super hot, then you have to try and develop a price point um, where you think that you're not making the barrier to entry too high. 
And that's yeah. before you even get into ticket service charges in the secondary market. You know, my argument with promoters has always been the cost of inventory management on a general admission ticket is zero. It's printing. If it's a thousand capacity room, your cost is printing tickets from one to 1000. There's no, there's no real work to be done there. Yeah. Um, but you know, look, I also think the industry for a long time kept ticket prices super cheap. And by the way, still is subsidizing concert tickets. You're only seeing now a move to put the sales tax for a ticket on top of the price. Right. What's been happening in the music business is that you charge the ticket price and then you deduct the tax from that. So you're basically, if it's, you know, if you're in Texas and it's 8.25% sales tax, then you're underwriting 8.25% of the cost of that ticket. Meanwhile, everybody has been buying things on Amazon or, you know, eBay or any e-commerce site uh, of any note, you know, since the law was passed, I don't know, nine years ago and enacted eight years ago where you pay sales tax at the, at the point of manufacturer origin, people grumbled about it, but like, all right, well, our years of free sales tax are over. We're now paying sales tax. Right, right. Concert tickets should be no different. Should be treated like any other commodity that's, that sold uh, electronically. Yeah. And I think that's one obvious area where you're going to see ticket prices go up. Um, how do you, how do you account for service fees when you're pricing a ticket? Do you or not? Or um, what's your view on that? Cause those are kind of you know, outrageous. I, I mean, 30% in some cases. Oh, I, 30% is a, a quaint number. Mm -hmm. I mean, when you're, when you're looking at a $25 ticket with $14 charge and $14 charges, for what's basically convenience fee, and a promoter will make the argument, and they're not wrong, to say, well, listen, they can go to the venue box office and not pay a service charge. Yeah, that's what which, the, by yeah, the way, that's what the origins of generation. Where, when, Ticketron, my that's, generation. That, that's the, the founder of Ticketron. That was what he said, and and the, and the industry, the ticketing industry, has been saying that forever. It's kind of got. I agree with it in essence. Yeah, if you want to go sit your ass down at the box office and wait till ticket sales go on sale, then you can do that, right? Until the box office opens, I agree with that to a certain extent. That's actually true, and that's reality. It's a little bit gotten out of control. Well, it, it has because we've taken <sighs> this is the price of convenience online. You know. Online and mobile ticket sales now makes up 90% of all sales. Yeah, right, exactly. You know, you could charge more when you're taught 15% of our sales are online, right? right? Everything else is at outlets. In Texas, you could go to a Dillard's department store and buy concert tickets. Uh -huh. um, you know, that's mostly dried up. It's now almost exclusively online. And there are limited opportunities to go in, in person show up. Right. And look, that's what, but you know, I mean, I'm in my forties. It's like, I remember going in line, Madison, not Madison Square Garden, Market Square Arena in Indianapolis when, you know, the Pacers lineup was Rick Smith, Dale Davis, Derek McKee, Reggie Miller, uh, and Mark Jackson, and really looked like they were going to win it all, by the way, in 95. Right. Um, I was, I was a Knicks my, fan at the time. Thank you very much. Well, you and I will hash out our resentments after the after the after the podcast. I mean, but, I hated Reggie Miller, but I also kind of loved him because I thought he was awesome. And he went to UCLA, so I'm cool with him. He was unbelievable, and for the record, a great ambassador for Indianapolis. Like the guy really oh, totally. put the city on his yeah, back. Yeah, yeah. Rick Smith's on the but, other hand, I could do with that. Okay, let's move forward. But you know, that was something you did, and by the way, that's something culturally 
that we've lost. That's an experience where the internet has reinforced our separation. The same way that the pandemic is, it's like that used to be a thing you do. You go with your buddies, line up at the box office at four o'clock in the morning, six o'clock in the morning, you get tickets. Like, you know, it wasn't always fun. It wasn't always warm, right? but you did it. And like, that was well, like, now we're really doing that with that a, now you're doing that with a bunch of buddies online and everyone's got all their computers and we're all working together to try to get tickets that way. But the pricing, how much does it, how like, that it's going to be an additional 30% for the consumer? How much does that figure into what your pricing model is? If ever. Um, it's got to figure in a little well, bit, obviously, because like the end user is going to be spending X amount of money, no matter what you say. Well, but you have to look at it from a legacy standpoint in that, you know, Live Nation is Ticketmaster, AEG is Access. There are a few people that use Paceylon. There's, you know, Ticket Web. There's Tickets West. There's yeah, a few Event independents. Bright, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but what you have is you have a rate card, right? You talk to somebody in AEG, you talk to Don Strasberg in Denver, shout out Don. And you say, all right, what's my ticket service charge? For this ticket at the Mission Ballroom, could be five different acts. If it's a thirty-five dollar ticket, it's the same service charge, right? Same thing with Ticketmaster. If I talk to Alex Maxwell, who is the tour promoter for Jack Harlow uh, in North America, Alex, what's the ticket service charge at this ticket price in this Ticketmaster venue as opposed to this one? It's the same one. Okay. So what I will say is there is. You may not be in love with the percentage, but there is consistency across the platform. And okay. okay, but but when you think about how does it factor into your thinking when you're setting a ticket price for an artist as to what you need, what they need to make, because you know that the fans are going to be spending 30% more? Well, uh, you know... Then you get into, you know, kind of how the sausage is made. I mean, look, if you have an artist that's taking no guaranteed money to go and play a show, Mm -hmm. that artist has more leverage to say, I want you to cap your service charge at X, right? 20%, Mm -hmm. which would be a good cap at almost any price point, realistically. I mean, 30% Mm -hmm. is, I don't think is the mean, median, or modal number. But, um, you know, an artist that's going to, take a guarantee and especially in a room that's getting four-walled by a promoter the ticket service fees are largely where the promoter is making money yeah um and i wouldn't point out any specific examples but once you start doing that right you really you really having a negative financial impact on the promoter which you yeah. need them to be healthy I mean, absolutely i agree the promoters need to make the, the promoters need to make money obviously that's not that's not what i'm saying here i'm just kind of wondering how that fits into your own ticket pricing model i i do not i, I am looking at the gross ticket price inclusive of the facility fee that's my benchmark mm-hmm. and i'm looking at what we did the last time in the market Right. I'm not spiking. We're not raising the ticket price 30 percent. If we're doing 80 percent or better business, I'm probably looking at a 250 to five dollar increase on a lot of the stuff. Right. Yeah, yeah. Now, that's also stuff that, you know, is consistent, steady road work. And we'll put out new albums and we'll put out new songs, but ne- won't necessarily, you know, be racking up 300 million streams or a billion streams or something like that. Yeah. yeah. And 
the good news is for the touring economy of artists that don't have a ton of hits, there's 330 million people in this, in this country. And there are a lot of bands that can make a very solid living going on the road. The, the, if the ticket prices are going to go up, it's mostly not because the bands are like, we want to make up for all the money we lost because you're never going to get that back. And a lot of artists got grant money to hold them over during the pandemic. Not everybody mm-hmm. did, but a lot of artists, a significant number of artists got them. Mm-hmm. But you, what you're looking at is increased costs for touring. So fuel, the a tour bus, it hasn't quite doubled, but it's in excess of a, a, a 40 or 50% increase in the cost per day of having uh, of just a, a tour, a tour bus. bus out of Is the that road. including gas? Uh, You're no, that's, that, gas prices, labor. That's the bus, that's the gas. The driver is completely separate. Yeah, yeah. And then you, you have some drivers <sighs> that, you know, reasonably, or, you know, in some pe- people's view, certainly not mine, unreasonably don't want to, you know, like, I don't want to be in an enclosed space for that. It's spending hours. It's harder to get drivers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've seen yeah. a lot of people walk away from, jobs they did for you know 10 20 however many years and you've seen that in the artist transportation business as well yeah so what you're saying is that ticket prices haven't necessarily gone up because artists are trying to recoup losses over the last past the year and I would there's say a the lot of different kinds of there's a lot of fixed costs that have gone up for a number of different reasons not exclusive to COVID. and labor is the biggest driver and, yeah. and promoters it's not it's not just stagehands yeah. Right. It's not it's not union stage hands. It's not local non-union stage hands. It's concert security. You know, the joke used to be, you know, if you, you went to <clears throat> backstage entrance and like a security guard was, I don't care what your past says. The answer is no. And you kind of like, well, you know, that's kind of what I expect for, you know, somebody is making eight bucks an hour to say it's like right. if they don't know 100 percent, they're going to turn me away. Right. Yeah. Sort of the train finally pulling into the station on labor costs that were yeah. artificially suppressed for the better part of 15 years. Right, right, right. Yeah, so there's just so many factors that go into pricing. One thing uh, on the pricing note, one thing I want to get your take on is Ticketmaster um, basically scalping tickets that are being sold, that they're selling. Platinum pricing. You know, well, that's not, uh, that's you're, you're, not, you're able to sell back your own ticket to Ticketmaster instead of like getting the ticket, putting it up on cash or trade, selling it at face value in a community based ticket selling um, app, for example, for, as for one example, and turning around and offering that to others that are looking for tickets and selling it as a premium at a premium. Yeah, but see, I don't but I don't look at that as scalping. Right. You're looking at that is an off uh, offensive measure. And I look at this largely as a defensive measure. I'm looking at, we already talked about this a little bit, a little bit earlier. What we are trying to do as an industry. And look, I'm not, I, I, I say this, I don't want to put anybody out of a job. Um, you know, that's not the goal. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think anybody's sitting in their ivory tower, twisting their evil mustache, thinking of ways that they could downsize people. But what I would say is, <laughs> The secondary market, not having any any stake in the production and marketing and promotion of these artists and these events that, you know, I, I was I was on a Zoom today with uh, John Ketchum, who is a brilliant guy who works for Live Nation and Ticketmaster, who has, uh, you know, not everything is an algorithm, but it, but 
John is, and he's got an unbelievable crew, George Galliano, Maritza Restrepo, Alex Maxwell. Was, we were talking about the Jack Harlow tour mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, kind of what dynamic pricing and, and platinum pricing looks like. What we're trying to do is capture revenue that would otherwise have gone to the secondary market, but to cap those prices well below what you would see on a secondary market site. I mean, I hope I'm not, you know, I don't think this is industry secrets finding stretch of the imagination, but I, I look at this as a defensive measure. If I was trying to sell tickets, I would probably want to do that myself. It becomes a problem when uh, the agency that's selling you tickets are then, uh, you know, you're, you're in there and you're buying tickets and it's on the on sale date for a ticket, for example, and we've all been there. And then all of a sudden you're like looking and, you know, it's supposed to be a hundred bucks for a seat. And then, but there's a couple that are available that are right away, $300 a seat or 200 or whatever it is. No, I, I hear you on that. Yeah, um, I, it's it's a it's a it's a it's a it's a it's a bone of contention. It's a it's a fr- certainly a frustrating kind of bottleneck issue. Well, and there's some shows that wind up before the on sale where they that appear on you know some of the secondary market sites. I don't want to you know call anyone individually out, um, but before the show goes on sale, there are already tickets for a show on a secondary site. Well, those tickets aren't be- as you know, those tickets aren't being delivered. Those are just people that are you know the. If you're a scalping agency and you're selling on StubHub, you're telling people that you're going to bring that ticket and you don't have to deliver that ticket for a while. So they're kind of acting on their own um, understood ability and their confidence that they're going to be able to deliver that ticket to you. They don't have to deliver it right away. That is a very cogent explanation of the process. I don't think that the average member of the ticket consuming public necessarily understands that that's the order of operations. Yeah. And what I'm saying is the perception, you know, I don't want to devolve into sort of a, you know, a conversation about disinformation, but what I would say to you is that people are left with a certain impression when they see those tickets already on the secondary market. Right. And what I am not saying that, that platinum or dynamic pricing are panaceas. Mm -hmm. Um, But what I will tell you is in the same way that the recorded industry struggled to try and figure out what the next step was, when it became clear that the digitization of music ultimately meant the demise of the compact disc. On the ticketing side, we are trying to figure out the how to meld the primary ticket market and the secondary market and shrink the top half, the secondary market down, but keep more money in the primary market ecosystem. And ultimately, um, you know, this may not be the solution, but we're trying to figure it out. And it took a long time for recorded music to figure out that streaming was the answer. There are a lot of people that are still, you know, unsatisfied with that outcome. And I get that. But what I will say is we are trying really hard on the live side to figure out how to t- make tickets more accessible. And your example, I understand in the specific mm. that, you're going on sale and immediately it's platinum priced at, you know, $300. You know, whatever the premium is. Yeah. And I, I guess the question is, well, do you want to go to the, sh- the show or do you want to go to the show and sit in that seat? Because you're kind of unconsciously answering a real question about demand. 
what is in the concert industry, like anything else, like sporting, sporting events, it's about access, right? That if you're having to wait the general public on sale, that, that you're out of step a little bit insofar as most people, uh, even if they're I casual. Agreed. Okay. Agreed. So you yes. were smart there because you cut me off because if you didn't, I was going to talk for at least another 18 minutes. <laughs> no, come on. And, and, uh, and, and here's to me that it's only an hour and 20 minutes in that I'm like, uh, that I had to just basically, I don't want to say yeah, cut yeah, you off. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm trying, what was the cartoon I, with the, the <laughs> it wasn't the Pink Panther, but he's like, he's got the shepherd's crook, egg, exit stage left. I've just now wasted another 10 seconds. Oh, Please continue. Oh, exit stage. Uh, okay. Well, <laughs> keep going. I got to figure You're that good. out. No. Yes, there are different tiers. And, you know, shout out to the bands that have fan clubs that work with the ticket sales outlets that give exclusive um, uh, uh, access to tickets to their fans at the price they want to sell them at. The dead pioneered it, you know, Corn yeah. Capshaw amplified it at red light management. I mean, he was kind of a visionary in the space yeah. and, um, you know, look, there are ways to do that. I don't, I don't think that, 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 that we're in a Rapunzel situation where you have an unscalable height that you have to, you have to climb over in order to get into these programs. But I think a lot of people in the ticket buying public are, are in the know on this stuff have a gateway through one of these pre-sales where yeah. they can get access and, and probably are avoiding kind of the, the frustration that you're talking about. Yeah. 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 It's all really interesting stuff, man. Thanks for even going down that road for me. I know it's um, you know, ticket pricing is a big deal. Um, it's, you know, uh, we set up, you know, there's some organizations that say we need, if this artist needs to make X, and that's the driver and you figure out the rest of it. And, you know, I will say our organization seems to be more driven by these are the correct ticket prices. Let's figure out what the deal is from there. How many bands that you work with say, we want to have a fan club. We want to, we want to, we're going to charge X amount a year. Um, and we're going to try to create a method where we can give our, the real fans that love this band access to the best seats. I think that I, I think, well, I don't think I'm qualified to speak intelligently on it. I would say I have a few artists to do that. Um, I think that it takes a certain amount of educating um, why that has value. What I will say is that, you know, you have, I don't know, if it were up to me, if I'm being honest, Josh, I mm -hmm. would just go back to the old school and just put it on sale and price all of the tickets. Here's to where we think we'd sell them. That is sadly no longer the way of the world because mm -hmm. it's gotten awfully convoluted. Yeah. But you have people that depend again on these avenues to, to get tickets. And I understand it. And as we move towards a more digitized society, then that sort of stuff makes sense. Yeah. Um, as far as bands fostering a fan club, they should be doing that. Um, there's a whole other rabbit hole that you potentially open up there because what's the most important thing about getting somebody to sign up for your fan club? It's not the credit card information. It's the mobile phone number or the email address, right? It's your data. Sure. Yeah. And privacy is, you know, a huge issue in this regard. You know, I, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I think there are pluses and minuses to it. I think if you're an early adopter uh, if you're an early fan for a lot of these artists, you know, I was, 
in Indianapolis, ironically, with my dad, uh, my dad and Cal Mm -hmm. uh, Calendar and Chris Thomas, Jack's manager, and uh, Neelam as part of the management team. And Jack all had dinner together at uh, at St. Elmo's Steakhouse in Indianapolis, famous (laughs) for a shrimp cocktail. And um, we went to the show and... Jack actually stopped the show at one point because there was a kid who was in the audience mm-hmm. who was at one of Jack's first shows in Louisville. Wow. And was wearing the same jersey that he was wearing at that show. <laughs> and Jack recognized him. He was, you know, I don't know, 10, 12 rows back, but was, you know, jumping around or whatever. And yeah. said, like that kid. Like he's already part of all of this stuff, right? Yeah, yeah There's yeah, a reason yeah. that he was where he was in the venue that Jack could even see him because mm. he was an early adopter. Yeah. And I, I think that fan clubs are good to keep people in the know. Um, I think you could probably bombard people who are all very busy based on the, you know, productivity numbers that I cited a little bit ago that we are inundated deluge with stuff all of the time. Right. That, you know, that email may in the moment not seem like the most important, but I think it's good to have a fan club. I mean, this is all, this is all stuff that was as analog as it gets. Uh, you know, when, when we were attaching ourselves to bands. Yeah. Way back with uh, with Elvis and the story of bringing him to Dallas when the woman, if you read the the rock concert story uh, in the book, um, and I had the author on the show and I'm blanking on his, I, I, my, uh, Mark Myers uh, wrote this fascinating book. And one of the stories was there was this woman who was convinced that she could bring Elvis to Dallas. The colonel didn't think he, she could do that. She gathered all these names, had all these people sent in postcards somehow, and actually promoted the show herself just by virtue of getting all the fan information. So that that, that those avenues do exist. Yeah, no, you should check that check out that book. Um. So anyway, Aaron, I know you're really busy. Thanks for taking so much time uh, and uh, for laying on all these these uh, these amazing stories and amazing uh, uh, explanations for for what you do, man super fascinating i'm uh, i'm ha- I, I thank you so much for having me on um i appreciate you maintaining consciousness throughout this conversation <laughs> I'm it's trying, not easily man. achievable <laughs> you're doing so good you're um no your stories are fascinating it's it's such a it's an incredibly fascinating business and that you're uh you know i i wish you the best of luck i mean jack harlow's fucking killing it man it's just uh, uh and uh i'm gonna definitely check out uh magic city hippies and and others and um uh, I know everyone will enjoy just having listened to you and getting kind of an inside. Two, sort of two other acts that on. you should listen to. Two other acts. Yeah. Uh, Reggie uh, on Spotify. You can find these. Uh, I would I would check out Reggie. I.E. or uh, I.E. All okay. lowercase. Oh, and right. then I would check out Black Odyssey, which is not spelled conventionally. Uh, that's B-L-K-O-D-Y-S-S-Y. Two two young bands that Cal and I are working on that are uh, he always makes fun of me because I call them bands. It's just my fault setting for music. But two artists that are incredibly incredibly good that right. that, that we're thinking something great might happen. And my apologies, we didn't even get to Umphreys, and we'll do that in the next interview next next go around. I will be here. Nobody <laughs> loves the sound of my voice more than I do. <laughs> Thanks a lot for being here, Aaron. I really appreciate it, man. You uh, you rock, dude. 
Thank you so much, Josh. Have right a great on. weekend. Right on. Thanks. You too, man. Okay, that was Aaron Pincus of Wasserman Media. Uh, very interesting conversation I had with Aaron. Uh, he's definitely got the gift of gab, as I said at the top. But uh, but that's a good thing. We really learned a ton about him, his personal development, where he came from, uh, grown up in Indianapolis, uh, working for John Mellencamp early and really getting that bug uh, as, a, as a college student. He was really a go-getter, you know, he was in the right place at the right time a couple times. But, you know, I really got the sense that he was just raring to work and really be in this business with his dad. Uh, working in the promoting business as well. Um, and, uh, you know, having that had that experience and finally made the jump out to LA, uh, William Morris, and then eventually with Wasserman Media. But um, so interesting to hear about this super integral part of the live music ecosystem, uh, the agents that book the talent into venues where we see uh, bands uh, eventually. And, um, what I found really interesting is and enlightening is this this uh, hearing about his belief in bands and how he's moving that forward to book bands uh, first at smaller venues and then into the larger uh, venue world uh, eventually if that's the, the direction that it goes and of course we also heard the flip side of that kind of when it goes wrong as well uh, and talking to him about ticket pricing of course was interesting we kind of got into a lively back and forth about that um, interesting to hear his take on ticket mass and ticketing, you know, it's tough out there if you're a fan of major bands at large venues trying to get tickets with high pricing and getting in there to actually get the seats you want to get and then having to pay these service fees. But, um, you know, that's kind of the, the way of the world. You know, if you have opinions on that and want to share them with me, I'd love to hear what you all are thinking about that. If you want to email me, we're at info at roadcasepod.com. I'd love to hear where you stand on that. Uh, you heard where I'm at uh, during that interview, you know, just looking for a level of fairness and kind of understanding what we're paying. I don't have a problem with promoters at all. I think that, um, and also the ticketing systems, they're there, uh, they're a way for you to get tickets, but, uh, sometimes those, those service fees get out of control and also the platinum pricing, the Ticketmaster uh, employs as well, uh, is, uh, uh, is pretty challenging if you are a consumer of concert tickets. So anyway, uh, thanks again for being here for this episode of Road Case. We'd love to hear what you have to think about this and uh, really appreciate your support with Road Case. We got a lot of episodes coming up and a ton of great, great guests uh, that I talked to. And I'm so happy to and uh, excited to share those with you uh, coming up. And I want to send a special thank you to Aaron Pincus of Wasser Media, Wasserman Media for being here on this episode of Road Case. Thanks again so much for listening. And I'd like to encourage everyone to get involved with Roadcase. You can do so in a number of different ways. You can email me at info at roadcasepod.com with questions, comments, and even suggestions for guests. Or you can follow us on the socials, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We're at RoadcasePod. And we have a YouTube channel called Roadcase Podcast. And of course, you can subscribe to this podcast on your favorite listening platform. And if you could please rate and review the podcast while you're there, that would be great. So I want to thank Waltzer for this awesome theme music that we have. And I want to thank all of you for tuning in and listening to Roadcase. We have a lot of great episodes coming up, so I'll see you on down the road. <laughs> <laughs>